Welcome to Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. As part of our series focusing on the James Webb Space Telescope, our conversations aim to shed light on the contributions of people from various organizations that brought it to fruition. JWST, or Webb, is a space observatory that is a million miles from Earth, giving us a new look at the universe. I'm Louis Noel a recent graduate of the Master of Engineering Management and Leadership program from Rice University. For this episode, I had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Allison Nort, Director of Space Science and Instrumentation at Lockheed Martin's Advanced Technology Center. I was interested in the new innovations and the partnerships that made the Webb Telescope a success. Enjoy listening! So there are four instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope, and since it's an international project, uh, some of those instruments are actually from the international partners. There are two from the European Space Agency and one from the Canadian Space Agency. And and the one that uh, I worked on called the near-infrared camera is the one U.S. instrument. So it's also the the primary near-infrared imager on the observatory, and it kind of serves two purposes, not just as it a science instrument, but it also serves as the wavefront sensor, which means it does the sensing for how the images are coming from the telescope and how they're, for, for lack of a better term, how are they messed up? Um, because the James Webb telescope has 18 segments in its primary mirror. So mm-hmm. there are 18 segments that are all adjustable on orbit and you have to change the, the shape of them and their position and orientations. Get it to act like a perfect mirror after it unfloats space and then cools down to cryogenic temperatures. So that sensing of, of how to correct the primary mirror is all done within NIRCAM. So if NIRCAM doesn't work, or if it didn't work, it does now, um, but if it hadn't worked, then the James Webb telescope would not have worked. Yeah, that's quite the mechanisms and actuation problem for all 18 segments moving. I remember that was a very pivotal part of of the launch when it was in orbit and then had to adjust it to make sure we got it, everything in focus and working. Let's step a bit down on the, in yep. terms of technical level, just for this next question. Um, could you describe how an infrared camera is different than other cameras and why that may be important to James Webb Space Telescope? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So the the light that our eyes can see is just in the visible spectrum. And that's a very small portion of the, the entire electromagnetic spectrum that includes x-rays and microwaves and, and all of these different types of, of electromagnetic radiation. The infrared spectrum is just a bit longer than red. So the ultraviolet is a bit shorter than blue and, and the infrared is a bit longer than red. And the observatory, it starts with the science. Everything starts, you know, why, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we looking in the infrared? Starts with the science. So the science goals for the Webb telescope are to look at the very first galaxies to form after the Big Bang. And these galaxies formed a long time ago, you know, approximately 13.7 billion years ago. So how do we look back in time like that? Well, the light takes a long time to get to us because the universe is expanding. And of course, We've learned over the last several decades that not only is it expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion, which means that the, the objects that are very far away from us are traveling away from us and accelerating in their speed. So if we want to look back in time and see these very first galaxies, 
who are looking a long time away at objects that are moving far away from us. Well, light is shifted similar to sound. When you, mm -hmm. you hear a, a train go by, you know, you hear the Doppler effect in, in motion where the train is at a higher pitch as it's coming toward you and then a lower pitch as it's going away from you. So, you know, it sounds like... Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing happens with light that happens with sound. So if we're looking at an object that's coming toward us, it looks bluer than it actually is. And if you're looking at an object that is moving away from you, it looks redder than it actually is. But if it's moving really, really fast away from you, then the light can be shifted into a very different spectrum than it originally is. So these galaxies, they started with light that our eyes can see, even blue light. And as it evolved over time and it is now moving so far away from us, that light's all been stretched out by the effect of the speed of the light and it's stretched into the infrared. So we need to look at these longer wavelengths that are stretched out. So that's what derives the, the need for an infrared camera. And it enables us also to see within a nebula. The property of infrared light is that it can detect heat. And so if we're looking for how our stars, galaxies born, there's a big cloud like a nebula of, of gas and dust that the visible light can't get through. But infrared light detects heat, it can see through that and see to the birthplace of the stars. What's different about an infrared camera, it can detect those longer wavelengths. So the detectors are optimized to see infrared light as opposed to visible light or, or even ultraviolet. There are certain detectors that can see ultraviolet light, RC infrared light. But infrared light, again, is a detection of heat. If you're building a telescope to detect heat you have to make it really cold or the heat will blind it effectively. So our instrument operates at 37 Kelvin or 37 degrees above absolute zero. Mm -hmm. So that enables us to be very sensitive to the faint infrared light that's coming from infant galaxies billions of years ago. And that detection at, at such a, a low temperature, I understand that was partly what made that possible was the large sun shield. Is that correct? And was that something you worked on? I did not work on that. Uh, there, there were many, many people who worked on all aspects of web. But yes, one of the unique features of web is that it is passively cooled. Most of it. There is one cryo core, but I'll talk about that in a minute. But most of the observatory is cooled down to roughly 40 Kelvin due to this giant sun shield that's the size of a tennis court. And it has five layers in it and they separate these layers so that there is a, a vacuum or a space between them. So you don't get conduction through those layers. And they basically shield the light from the earth, the sun and the moon at the same time, which dictates where we are. The, the Webb telescope is a million miles from earth and it's away from the sun in the opposite direction of the sun at a unique orbital point called L2 or Lagrange point two, where it can orbit this point and use this giant sun shield to block the heat of the sun, the earth and the moon. And so that allows the telescope to cool down to roughly 37, 40 Kelvin and keep us very cold. So yes, that sun shield enables us to do that. But I did not work on that. I just worked on the instrument, the camera. But there's lots of people who worked on all different aspects of web. Yeah. Speaking of which, I mean, it, it's a very complex and large project spanning multiple countries and continents and organizations. Um, do you know how many people were involved in the JWST project and maybe how many of those were from Lockheed Martin? 
Uh, yeah, there's been estimates that roughly 20,000 people have worked on web, which is it's a large number of people, but it took a huge team uh, to do that. Um, at Lockheed Martin, there were about 130 to 150 people over the course of the time. We never had that many at one point working on it. But remember, we worked on it for quite a long time and, and supported it. We basically worked on it from the time we first proposed it until we delivered it. It was just over 10 years. But the project started in 2002. It's launched in 2021. So a lot of that time was at higher levels of testing. And we didn't, we weren't working on the camera for 20 years, but there was a lot of different layers of testing. And so some aspects of the program had to start earlier than others. Mm -hmm. um, but over that time, yeah, something like 20,000 people worked on it. Um, and these are people from all over the world. I mean, there's people from Europe, from uh, Canada, from the United States, from you know, even uh, French Guiana, where the, the rocket launched from. So several continents of people working on the telescope. So cool. Um, and was there ever a point in the project where they needed to put a, a lot more personnel on it? Like, you know, was it maybe like a team of you know, 20 to 40 at Lockheed Martin, then did it ever ramp up at like a particularly, you know, critical moment or one where you needed a lot of personnel? Yeah, yeah. The the most number of people that were working on it was probably final testing of all of the components and starting integration. Because we had a lot of different assemblies that would have to come together to be put into the camera. NearCamp had over 130 optics and each optic needed to be individually tested and then assembled with its next higher level of assembly and, and tested again and tested again and make sure that everything works at every level. Again, everything has to be tested at cryogenic temperatures. So it takes a lot of work to do that. All the electronics boards were going through testing, trying to do a lot of testing in parallel. And that's what adds up to, to a lot of people to get that done. I see. That's very interesting. So what was your approach to problems or maintaining motivation? on this long-term project? And was that approach similar to that of your team members? Well, yeah, I think that a lot of team members had a lot of motivation to get this done. What drove us was getting, you know, this mission accomplished. It really, you know, the science in the end. But, you know, there are there are some long days when, when things don't go well. A lot of the things that we had to develop for NearCam and for web as a whole were new that hadn't been done before or hadn't been applied this way. So not just um, new technologies that had to be developed, but better ways of doing things that had never been done before. I mean, manufacturing of optics, for instance, you think, oh, well, optics have been, you know, manufactured since Galileo was grinding lenses, for sure. But if you're going to do them orders of magnitude more precisely than has ever been done before, you have to develop new processes. You have to figure out ways to do this at 37 Kelvin. Um, and then the the end mission to accomplish this world-class observatory that better than any observatory has ever been built before. So that's just motivation to, to work on such a great project. It can change the fundamental understanding of the universe. That's, that's a lot of motivation. <laughs> that is, yeah. That When it boils down to it, that is yeah. quite an impactful sort of overarching mission. Uh, so one question we always like to ask is, did you experience anything surprising that you did not expect while working on this project? <laughs> About every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you think, oh, well, it's the same, but different. We'll just do it again. And then it's not. You know, there's lots of challenges and you go into test and you put something together the way that, you know, a textbook could tell you the best it could be done. And you find out that's not good enough. And then you have to do an order of magnitude better. So 
Yeah, sometimes things are surprising and sometimes they surprise you in a good way, even if you're the only one that thinks that it can be done and accomplished and a lot of people are telling you it can't. And then you sometimes get pleasantly surprised and go, see, it worked the way I planned. It, occasionally that happens, but, you know, this is the process of invention and, and discoveries. So how did partnerships yeah. with NASA, ESA and the CSA or other organizations influence decision making and project timelines? And uh, more broadly, I guess, what would what do you consider best practices for long-term collaborations with multiple organizations? Okay, yeah, a couple different parts to that question. The instruments were individually split up into different contributions from different countries. So they were separate. Until we all got together at the same time at the end, uh, when we delivered our instruments, what the European Space Agency was doing didn't really affect what we were doing or what Canada was doing, we were kind of working in parallel. So we weren't affecting each other on a daily basis. There were some decisions made early by NASA that said, originally we were going to have Canadian contributions inside of NIRCAM. We were going to work with the Europeans. And the NASA management said, you know, I think that that's a recipe for possible delays because we have a lot of restrictions in space flight. We were at that point governed by the ITAR rules. Hmm. And a lot has gone under the Department of Commerce now, but the Department of State has rules on international traffic and arms regulations. So a lot of spaceflight hardware falls under those rules. And so it makes it a bit more challenging to share information internationally. And so NASA decided that NIRCAM would be an all-U.S. instrument and that we wouldn't have to get contributions from Canada or Europe, which for better or for worse, it simplified interfaces, but we didn't, we kind of worked in parallel separately. So as for best practices on a large mission like this, I think it's, you know, check your egos at the door and work for the mission together. Uh, you know, an example of this was when we, when we got to uh, finally put all of the instruments together into what's called the integrated science instrument module. So it's the structure that holds all of the science instruments. And now we're we are literally millimeters from each other when we put our instruments in and there's not a lot of extra space in there and put us all into one structure. And then we had to go to test that structure, go to the vibration test. And it's the first time that, that the different teams were all in the same room. The test was executed at NASA. So we had the NASA team there that was executing the test and we had the NIRCAM team there from Lockheed and the US team. And then we had the Europeans um, from the Miri and NIRSPEC teams, and we had the Canadians there for their instrument, FGS Nearest. And we are all literally sitting shoulder to shoulder at different consoles, watching the data come in from those tests. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at all of the different channels from the accelerometers that are all over the instruments. And of course, first you look at your own results for your instrument, but then you've got access to everybody else's results. And so you're kind of cross-checking each other and and if anybody had any sort of anomaly, we were all kind of rolling up our sleeves and, and getting together. There wasn't any finger pointing. There wasn't any, uh, ha, 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 we're done. We're going to go out to eat. And you guys, you know, solve your problem and stay till midnight. Everybody was working together in that environment. And that kind of collaboration, I think, is essential for a project like this. We saw it at different levels of testing. You know, it's a really refreshing environment to be in. Yeah, that's really fun. You know, sometimes you have to compartmentalize when dealing with things like ITAR, and, but it, engineering really shines, I think, when you get in that teamwork setting and yeah. you get to collaborate and build something amazing, which you clearly have done. 
How do you think James Webb Space Telescope is changing the way we see the universe? Uh, have you looked at any of the pictures yet? Yeah. Uh, take, take a look at some of the images and the descriptions of them. And some of them are absolutely gorgeous. And some of them may just be a smudge of light. And yet we learn more from that smudge of light than you could ever imagine. What's been most exciting is, is seeing really the, the deep fields, looking at the very early galaxies. And I was talking to one of the scientists in the Space Telescope Science Institute last week, and she's looking at galaxies and looking at very, very old galaxies and trying to compare them to newer galaxies and seeing if you can understand what's going on in a, in a very old galaxy by comparing to something maybe a little bit closer and you get more light from and understand better, but making the galaxy comparisons of what was a galaxy looking like that was formed, you know, 13.5 billion years ago. And one of the big shocks that came out recently was that some of those very early galaxies are extremely massive and very mature. And that wasn't the hypothesis. The hypothesis was that those galaxies would be much smaller, they would be short-lived, they, they wouldn't look like this. And why? We don't know. You know, I'm now relying on the, the scientists and the astrophysicists to, to tell me what they're learning from these pictures. But they're going to fundamentally change what we know about the evolution of the universe, which I think is mind blowing. And it's mm -hmm. it's answering the questions of, you know, what makes us human as an advanced society to really ask and probe science questions to understand our world, our universe, our nature. We're really fundamentally changing human knowledge for the future. Go fast forward 500 years and what are the people 500 years from now going to think about what happened in the year, you know, 2020 or, you know, 2000s or something. I think that what we're learning with Webb will be as profound as anything that is going on anywhere in our world right now. And I think it will be remembered and look back as a great accomplishment even 500 years from now. I agree. It, it really is remarkable. And I think the work that you and many other people have been putting into this has really given a lot of hope and inspiration for a lot of people out there, you know, looking up at the stars, like there's more to see and there's certainly a lot more science to be done. So we're looking forward to it, but are you working on anything fun right now that you're excited about? Absolutely. I mean, web was fantastic to build and now the scientists are getting their time to use it. But I think what's really exciting now is what's next. And we're working on uh, formulating the Habitable Worlds Observatory. Yeah. And if I look, you know, over the past 30 years, we've discovered all of these exoplanets. But the ones that we've been able to see are very large planets, you know, Jupiter size or greater, large distances from their central star. And their central star is usually not as bright. We're trying to build an observatory that can observe an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star at about a 1 AU kind of distance and get its spectrum and see what kind of, you know, characterize those planets. I mean, if you go back in human history, how many times have people looked up, even at cavemans, and wondered whether there's another world like ours out there? And we've never seen it. And within our lifetime, we might be able to. And so we're working on those technologies right now. And that's what's really exciting. We hope you enjoyed our episode. Please visit longitude.site for the transcript. If you are a college student interested in leading conversations like this for our next podcast, please write to us at podcast at longitude.site.
Join us next time for more unique insights on Longitude Soundbites.